Well, keep your Bibles where they are. Daniel 3, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 will be our text for this morning. We are studying the book of Daniel together, and uh, I've just enjoyed it so far. And uh, just been so, so challenged uh, by the scripture uh, in just a multitude of ways. And uh, I don't know about you, but I am just really, really pressing into the grace of God because I, I just keep finding so much error and foolishness uh, in my own life and in my own thinking. And uh, so I'm just really been pressing into God's grace and asking him to do a work on me. And it's just been so challenging. But um, sometimes you feel like, you know, when you, you start reading a text, you start studying a text and you start seeing these things and you, and you start saying to yourself, there's just no way that I can preach on this section because I am the chief of sinners in this area. I just, there's no way. I mean, uh, and, and it just, I just marvel at how God uses uh, broken and foolish people like us to serve him. That's just incredible. And so it's like, okay, I just need to press on. I need to, to do my best to confess and to repent and, and to do what I can, but I need to stay faithful to his word and to my task, even if I find myself in total and absolute opposition to the text because of the way I live. Uh, it's so hard. So we are studying the book of Daniel. It's been very challenging for me, I would say, so far, and I'm sure for many of you. Last Sunday, we did wrap up chapter 2, and we looked at uh, the promotions that Daniel and his buddies received from King Nebuchadnezzar after describing and interpreting his crazy, mysterious dream. Daniel was made satrap of the province of Babylon, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were made counselors under him. As we move into chapter 3, we have to fast forward about two decades. Um, So there's basically about 20 years between the events of chapter 2 and the event of chapter 3, um, which I, I think is just interesting. Uh, you know, we need to remember that I'm sure lots and lots of things happened in that 20 years, right? Uh, but we need to remember that, that Daniel's primary objective was not to record everything that took place in Babylon while he was in exile there, uh, but that his primary task really was to Um, record, publish, if you will, and record the events that directly impacted him and his buddies. And so much more happened, I'm sure, in the 20 years, but Daniel is sticking to the things that that involved him, and uh, it's kind of his telling of his own story as he was in exile in Babylon. And so we just need to understand that. So, you know, there's going to be some space between some of these events. And I would say that what we're going to read about and look at today in chapter 3 was probably the next big thing to happen uh, in Babylon while Daniel was there. So we could kind of look at it like that. Chapter 3 presents uh, one of these really kind of big events that impacted Daniel and his buddies. And it is, I would say, probably one of the most popular and loved Bible stories of all time. It is the story known simply as Uh, the Hebrew children and the fiery furnace. Uh, I think most people are familiar with 
the story. Even people that, that don't go to church, they've kind of heard of these guys being thrown into this fiery furnace and them not being burned up and consumed. A lot of people have heard about that. And so that's the story that we'll be looking at. Um, I'm excited to look at it and, and not just do a cursory reading like I typically do when I just read scripture, but we're actually going to look at this story from front to back and try to examine all of the, the little things that took place and maybe some of the motives and all of that. So we're going to really break down this story. And when I say story, I, I'm not, I don't mean fairy tale. I don't mean, uh, you know, uh, a metaphor or something of that nature. This is a, a real historical event that took place. Daniel recorded history. So, uh, and that might be tough for us to uh, to get our minds around, because usually when you throw things in a fire, they get destroyed, but we are talking about a supernatural God here that did the preserving. And so, but anyways, this is a, a story, we're going to break it down, it is a historical event. I think it'll probably take about five weeks to uh, fully examine this chapter, chapter three, and this story. I've kind of got a layout here, and I do want to give the Holy Spirit room to change that up, uh, but I do believe God has led me so far to come up with this. So week one, we have the king's shiny statue and self-serving statute. That's verses one through seven. Week two, we have the Chaldeans' deadly declaration. That's verses eight through 12. Week three, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's firm faith. That's verses 13 through 18. Week four, we have the king's fury, furnace, and the fourth man. Uh, that'd be verses 19 through 27. And then finally, last but not least, unless the Lord changes it up, we have week five, we have the king's defeat and reverse decree. And that would be verses 28 through 30. Let's take a look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. And its breadth, six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The idea of an enormous image or statue reminds us immediately of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, right? I mean, we just studied that. Uh, in that dream, the statue had a head of gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar, while the rest of the body was made of other Metals and materials which depicted the lesser kingdoms that would come after him and end up in fragmentation, destroyed by the coming of God's kingdom, destroyed by the stone, Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar's statue here, according to chapter 3, verse 1, was made entirely of gold in an apparent attempt to counteract the dream. <laughs> It was a deliberate statement asserting that there would be no end with respect to his kingdom, but rather that his glory would continue forever and ever. Now, I want you to take a, a look at the dimensions that are mentioned here. Daniel does include some, some fantastic details that help to kind of get our minds and around this. The dimensions, it measured... 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. A cubit is an ancient measurement, about 18 inches or about a foot and a half. Roughly the distance between your elbow pit. I didn't know that this is called the elbow pit. This is the armpit, this is the elbow pit. From here to the tip of your finger. 
I measured mine. It's exactly that distance. Now I know some of you people aren't, you know, as, maybe as tall as I am or too thin to win like me. Uh, but uh, for the most part, that's a cubit right there. Okay, about a foot and a half. This makes the statue 90 feet tall. This is a big, tall statue, and nine feet wide. Okay, so we've got a 90-foot-tall statue, and we've got a, it's nine foot in its total width. Now, I think that the statue, yeah, bless you, I think that the statue itself was probably shorter uh, than this 90 feet. I don't think the gold section was that tall. I believe that there was a large base underneath the statue that gave it a total height of 90 feet. Uh, the ancients usually constructed bases for their idols, bases for their statues. For large statues like this one that we're looking at, they would build the base out of bricks. It's like they would brick and mortar and build a foundation for it. It might be climbing up like that all the way around. It could be round, but they would build it out of, out of bricks. It'd have to be very, very solid and uh, firm to, to support something of this size. So we've got something that's 90 feet tall, we've got something that's, uh, that's 9 feet wide, and we've got something that's made of gold. Now, I, I don't think that it was solid gold. Not that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't afford to construct something of that magnitude out of solid gold, but that's not typically the way they built statues back then. They would build, the, uh, they would build it out of wood, and then they would basically put sheets of gold over it. So it would be, um, what do we call that? Gold-plated. Okay, now, I'm, I'm sure that it was still worth an, an absolute fortune. So we've got this thing, 9 feet, 90 feet tall, big, big statue, all gold. Notice also how he includes the location. It says, he set it up on the plain of Dura. I think that's interesting. What he's telling us is that he did not set it up in Babylon City, like maybe in the middle of the Agora shopping center or something of that nature. He actually set this thing up out on the plain of Dura. Now, the king chose this particular location for several reasons. I did some research on the plain of Dura. I'd never heard of it until I read this text. So he had some reasons for this. He was motivated by several factors. First, the plain of Dura was flat. It's a plain. Not a lot of trees, not much going on out there, and it was wide open. So it was a flat area, wide open, which would make the statue visible from many miles away from all directions. If you put it in the city, you're probably not going to be able to see it unless you're close to it because you've got buildings and structures. He puts it out here outside of the city on a flat plain area where you would be able to see this thing from miles and miles. So he was motivated to put it there at this location because it had super high visibility. Second, the plain of Dura had a major trade route running through it. Okay, so it had what we would call a highway. It had I-5 going through the middle of this plain. It was a trade route, which means that traders and caravans and Arabians would be coming up from the south. There was a lot of commerce and travel happening on this route. And so not only would you be able to see it for miles away, but thousands and thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of people passed through this area all the time and would see this statue. So it was on a trade route. 
Third, now I think this is probably one of the most significant, I mean, we only got three reasons why I did it, at least that, that I could come up with. There were probably more than this, but I think this one might be one of the most significant, at least maybe the most significant of the three. The plain of Dura is believed to be the ancient site where the Tower of Babel once stood. In fact, if you were to visit this area today, it's called Dor, D-O-R, so it's, you know, it almost has its original name, Dura, but if you were to visit this location today, you can visit this location, you would see some ruins there and you would see some large platforms where something large, uh, large items like this statue and these kinds of things were sitting on top of it. So there's, there are pedestals in this area that are very, very massive today. So it is believed that this is the ancient location of the Tower of Babel. Now, why did mankind build the Tower of Babel? And obviously, it's called the Tower of Babel because it's associated with Babylon. So all of that plays into this. But why, why did the people build the Tower of Babel? They did it in rebellion to God. They, they did it in defiance the Tower of Babel was man's statement that, you know, you might be cool God, but we are humankind and we are the best. We are number one. What we do endures forever and ever and ever and ever. That was the mentality, the motive behind the building of Babel. So it was out of rebellion. It was out of defiance. And, and we know how the story goes, that God came down and frustrated the people and mixed their languages. They couldn't communicate. Basically, that whole landscape there ended up being destroyed. God said, well, you want to show me up? You want to test me? You think that you're greater? You think that you can ascend to heaven through your glory and your skills and your works and all these things? Well, fine. They were testing him. So it was built out of defiance. It was built out of rebellion. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar chose this particular location, this spot, to pay tribute to his ancestors and to pick up where they left off in the defiance. So there was a strategy here, man. He had, you know, this is the spot where my ancestors were defeated. I'm going to build something right where they did, and I'm going to show God. That's the idea here. That's what was happening. Daniel included another detail. He says at the end of the verse there, in the province of Babylon. So what that tells us is that Dura, this plain, was in the province that Daniel had just been elected to, well, I guess it was about 20 years earlier, but it was the, the territory or the province that he oversaw, that he managed. So all of this took place within Daniel's jurisdiction, if you will, the province of Babylon. Look at verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar set up a dedication service, and he demanded that every leader in his kingdom attend. He sent messengers out throughout all of the provinces of his kingdom to deliver 
invitations, which likely included directions to where this thing was. And you must understand that this was not an RSVP event. It was not optional. It was absolutely mandatory that his entire administration that was scattered throughout his kingdom attend this event. It would be like the White House putting out an edict saying every governor, every senator, every assemblyman, every this, that, every judge, every justice, every police officer, everyone must be at this dedication service. It would be similar to that. And Daniel does list eight types of leaders in the king's government. We'll fly through them. You have the satraps. Those are the chief representatives to the king. Daniel was a satrap. These are his highest, in his cabinet, these are his highest leaders, the satraps. Then you had the prefects. A prefect typically would be translated as a military commander. So these might have been his generals, something of that nature. You had governors. Governors were civil administrators. You have counselors. These were advisors to the governmental authorities. I almost think of them as like attorneys who offered advice to governmental authorities. You had the treasurers. That one is, it means exactly what it means. The treasurers managed and administered the funds of the kingdom. You had the justices. These were administrators of the law. So these would have been judges. Then you had magistrates. And this is a little different than justices. Magistrates were law enforcement. These are police officers, constables, sheriffs, whatever they called them then. This is like his entire police force, his sheriff's department, his highway patrol. You know, if they had such a thing, you know. They'd go out there and intercept guys riding by too quickly on a camel. You know, give them a ticket, you know, whatever it was. This was, this was that group. This was the whole body of his whole police force. And then there's this sort of generic term on here, uh, and that's the eighth one, all the officials. So that's probably a reference to those who actually served the satraps, some sort of uh, servant to the satraps. Now the idea here that Daniel is trying to impress upon us by including all of these types of leaders is that every type of leader in his kingdom, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, was told to come to this thing, to be a part of it. And like I said, it wasn't an RSVP. We can't make that time. It's my kid's birthday. We're going to be at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, whatever. No, you had to go. You had to be there. Look at verse 3. And there's some repetition here, but I think that Daniel really wants us to know that all of the leaders were there, like everyone was invited. It says, then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So verse 3 shows that 
that all of these leaders, all of the leaders that were invited and, and we might even say commanded, wasn't an option to be there, they all came to the event on the day of the event. They were all there, and I'm thinking because of the way Nebuchadnezzar was, they were probably all on time. You know, I had to stop at AM, PM, get some gas. No, 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 no. They were probably all on time. And when they arrived, they stood before the golden statue. Okay, so they knew that they were coming to a dedication service, but when they showed up, they probably just, hey, Jim, I haven't seen you for a while. How's it going in your province? They probably had some of that going on. These were real people. But for the most part, they're all standing in front of this massive pedestal and this you know, total height, 90-foot-tall gold statue, 9 feet wide. It must have just been incredible with the sun glistening and hitting it just right and probably blinding some of them. But for the most part, when they all showed up, they all stood before the image. And I would say that they likely marveled at its shape. They marveled at its height. They marveled at its beauty. I mean, it was, it was gold. It had to have been pretty looking. Now, we are not told what the image looked like. But the term image in Scripture usually means human form. Okay? I think that the image depicted Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because in Babylonian mythology, because that's all this was, it was a mythology like Greek and Roman mythology, Egyptian mythology. In Babylonian mythology, you know, you have all these gods, and these gods in Babylonian mythology did not look like men. They didn't look like people. They might have had some human features, but for the most part, if you looked at one, you would say that's kind of a gargoyle-looking thing. And uh, I don't know if you still have them or not, but those papers that I handed out maybe a month or so ago have a little picture of their chief god, Marduk, and he's like a leopard body with a dragon head, and you know, it's just a bizarre-looking thing. And so I think that the image depicted Nebuchadnezzar because he was a man, and image translates as human form. So, you know, Babylonians didn't have any gods that looked like a man. They had gods that looked like crazy-looking beasts and animals. So I think it was shaped like him. Now, this theory is further supported by the fact that ancient people believed that their kings were gods. (laughs) Gods in human form. Uh, Maybe we would call them demigods. You know what a demigod is? A demigod is... You think of Clash of the Titans or something like that where you have a god who has a a human wife and they have a child together. Now you have this kind of god-man demigod. You know, the son or the daughter is a demigod, half god, half man. And uh, so the ancient kings were usually viewed to be a kind of god, maybe a god in human form. Uh, The pharaohs in Egypt were viewed this way. Pharaoh... Uh, would often be called a god of some sort. Uh, So were the Roman emperors. They were hailed and worshipped as gods. And it is no different with Nebuchadnezzar. His people think that he is a god. And you would think that we would have outgrown these sort of crazy, you know, idolatry kind of tendencies. But if you visit North Korea, I wouldn't advise it. If you read anything about it, those 
dictators there are hailed and worshipped as gods. So this stuff continues today. And atheists like to argue that basically what we Christians have done is we've just copied these ancient civilizations by making Jesus the God-man. By turning Jesus into a kind of demigod. That's their claim. You know, well, the Egyptians did it way before you Christians did that. They had these God-men, and the Babylonians did it before you Christians did it. The Romans did it at about that same time, and before that, the Greeks did it. And so that's all Christianity is, is it's a, a reproduction of the old kind of way of doing things, this whole God-man thing. But we know as believers that there are no such thing as demigods, and that Jesus is not part man and part God. He is fully man and fully God, which means that he is completely unique and unlike anyone else ever, not like the Roman Caesars or the Pharaohs or anyone like that. Jesus is literally one of a kind. He is the only God-man, the only true God-man. And I was thinking, well, okay, so what are are the implications for us? Well, when we receive our resurrection bodies, we will be made most like Jesus, but we will not become God as he is God. We will not become deity. We won't become demigods, if you will. We will become glorified human beings suited for the eternal presence of God. A little history lesson there. Now let's look at 4 and 5. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So while the Leaders throughout all of his kingdom have assembled here and they're standing before the golden image. The herald, or the MC, if you will, he gave some additional instructions. All right, you're standing there. Now, here's what you are to do. Because they were probably wondering, how is this thing going to go down? He told them to bow down and worship the king's golden image when the Babylonian orchestra started playing a tune. Now, I want you to notice how Nebuchadnezzar's administration was culturally diverse. We need to pick up on that fact here. You've got people from different nations. You know, look at verse 4, the beginning of it. Oh, peoples, nations, and languages. You have people of different nations, people of different languages. And, and this would also be people of different political systems and people of different religions. I mean, who were these people? Why does Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet, why is it comprised of all of these foreign people? And Well, because when he went out and conquered peoples and other kingdoms, he would take the best of their best, the leadership and, and these sorts of folks, and he would train them as he did with Daniel and his pals, and he would employ them in his administration. And so you've got this massive cultural melting pot of all these different peoples from different tribes and tongues and all of that in his cabinet. 
O peoples, nations, and languages. Of course they have different political beliefs. Of course they have different religions. They've come from different areas throughout the land. You've got some Jews there that don't do things the way that Nebuchadnezzar does. Daniel included this very, very important detail because he wanted us to see that the king had multiple purposes for this gathering and dedication. It it wasn't just that the king erected this image and wanted everyone to come worship it and worship him. He had additional reasons for bringing all of these people together. The golden statue represents more than the king's glory It also represents his political system and religious system. Commanding that all of these people from these different tribes and tongues, commanding that they bow and worship the golden statue was his way of forcing these people, all of these people, to pledge their allegiance to his kingdom and to his gods. Ultimately to him. This event was about unification, bringing the people's nations and languages together under one political system and under one religious system. Okay, so the ideas of you being a part of my cabinet and you having your kind of religion that you do and maybe some of your political upbringing and thoughts and all of that, okay, The idea here is that this event is to extinguish all of that. You are no longer going to be able to do things your way. You are no longer going to be able to hang on to your political ideas. There's no Republicans and Democrats here. There's only Nebuchadnezzarites. You're you're not going to be able to worship your Judean God. You're not going to be able to worship your, your Greek God, you know, whatever it is. The Greek gods weren't around then yet, I should say. Maybe the Egyptian gods, because they were around by then. The idea is to unify everyone under one kingdom and political system and under one religion. This was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, I'm done. There's not going to be any more inbiting and fighting and and, and arguing and debating over who's God's. This is it. It's my way or the highway. You must bow and you are submitting to me and my system and my religion and you're putting to death everything else that you've always known and practiced. And this is what totalitarian regimes do. Nebuchadnezzar was a totalitarian. They force people to submit to their system. They force them. It's not a democracy. You don't get to vote. This is the way that it is. If you don't like it, too bad. ISIS is a modern-day example of a totalitarian regime. At gunpoint, they say, submit to Sharia, submit to Allah, or die. That's a totalitarian regime. And that is essentially what he is doing here. You will not be able to practice your religion, your way of doing things any longer. I want you all under my thumb, so to speak. You're going to worship my gods and you're going to exalt me as your supreme leader. That's, in effect, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. It's just mind-blowing when you take it all in and consider how he was praising God several years earlier and was recognizing God's supreme power in all of this. And and here he is setting himself up as the supreme ruler and and a god, in a sense. It's just mind-blowing. Now, I want you to notice how Daniel included 
six kinds of instruments that were present here. He listed six kinds of instruments. There was a wind section and there was a stringed section. It's an orchestra. Okay? And I thought maybe it sounded like the cantina song from Star Wars, but I don't think it sounded like that. The wind section had what? Horns, pipes, and bagpipes. And I think that the horns were like a ram's horn. You know, they would take a ram and cut the horn off. We would, the Jews would call them chauffeurs. They would blow into it. So it was like a curvy ram's horn. You know, that was like the, the, the first trumpet, if you will. And they had different sized ones and all that. So you had horns, pipes, and bagpipes. That's the, the wind section. And then you have the stringed section. You have lyres, trigons, and harps. The lyre was an early version of the acoustic guitar. It uh, didn't really look like the acoustic guitar right there, but that's kind of what it was based on. It had a box, it had a, you know, a pole coming up, and it had some strings on it and a head. So it was kind of like the early guitar. And then this trigon, it's a little mysterious. I'd never heard of that before until I read this. And the trigon, I did some research, was a smaller portable version of the harp that was played with a pick instead of with your fingers. We know that harps are big and, you know, this was way smaller and you had a pick. So you had this orchestra, you had a wind and a string section, okay, you had all of that. It was probably pretty impressive. They probably had like a hundred musicians, I don't know. It was all set up maybe at the foot of the statue. And the herald, the MC, the DJ, I'm slamming on myself here. He instructed this mixed multitude of leaders to bow and worship the golden image at the sound of music. The hills are alive, right? Now, he didn't only give these instructions, though. He also gave a warning. Look at verse 6. Okay, so when the music fires up, this is what you're to do, or else. And Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Okay, this is, this is bow to me, bow to my gods at gunpoint, bow to Sharia, bow to Allah, or die. That's what he's saying. Failure to bow at the sound of music, failure to worship would result in immediate execution. Death by being cast into a fiery furnace. Apparently, there was a furnace nearby, and it was hot and ready. I'm thinking this was the same furnace the blacksmiths or the metalsmiths used to heat up and shape the gold plates that covered the king's statue. He could have built a fiery furnace right there for this purpose. But I suspect that there was one nearby uh, that he was planning to use. Ancient furnaces like this were usually made from bricks. You had to have something that could withstand great heat. They were shaped like a a dome uh, with an opening, and they were large. They were shaped like a big, large dome, and they had an opening at the bottom, usually with like a set of iron doors on it, and you'd open those doors, and that's when you would throw charcoal or something like that that in there to burn and then uh, it would shape from a dome into a chimney and it would have a large opening at the top. Uh, It would almost be uh, like a forge or something like that. I mean these things got really 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 hot much harder than your Weber 
You would not attempt to do a tri-tip on this thing. It'd be like, gone. And so one of these devices, one of these mechanisms or, or things was nearby. Now this particular furnace featured a set of stairs that led up to the top of the chimney. And, and I was wondering, okay, so maybe that was added on. I don't, maybe, maybe there was a, a grill of some sort on the top where they would put things on to heat up at the top. I don't know why, but there were stairs that went up to the top of this thing. So, so the idea is that those who did not comply with the herald's warnings, with the king's rule law, they would be marched up this staircase and thrown down the chimney while the king looked on through the double doors, and he'd see their body you know, fall into the, into the, into the heap of, of you know, molten charcoal and be consumed. That's the idea. In recent years, some have attempted to follow or to walk in Nebuchadnezzar's footsteps to some degree here. There are some historical parallels here with this idea of bowing to an image and all of that. I found this to be fascinating. In 1973, the kind of mentioned him earlier, the dictator of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, and boy was he ill in the mind, he built a 73-foot-tall gold statue of himself and commanded that the North Koreans bow and worship it. After he died, his son, Kim Jong-il, maybe most of, her, most of us are more familiar with him, he built a similar statue depicting himself and installed it next to the one of his dad and demanded that the North Koreans worship it as well. Those two statues stand today. They're massive. And thousands and thousands of Christians, North Korean Christians, are currently incarcerated for not bowing to these statues. Saddam Hussein built multiple statues, some out of bronze. They certainly looked gold. He built many throughout Baghdad and these other places in honor of himself. I think the most famous statue of him being the one in Baghdad that was torn down by a U.S. tank in 2003. Do you remember the imagery where they're throwing the chain around it and the tank's tugging and pulling and it's coming down and then you have all of the Iraqi people beating the snot out of it with their shoes, with their sandals? Remember that? Hussein actually thought of himself as a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. He really did. He even attempted to rebuild Babylon City right over the top of the original ruins, but his plans were cut short uh, when uh, when his country was invaded and he was later captured and then executed by his own people. He was hung. Now, there are also several parallels between Daniel 3 and the book of Revelation. And I would go on to say there are several parallels between Daniel, period, and Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation, especially when we get to chapter 7, we'll see more of those. So there are some parallels in Daniel 3 with the book of Revelation. Nebuchadnezzar foreshadows the beast of Revelation 13.1. Another name for this beast is what? Antichrist. Not the Antichrist type that John talks about in his epistles. Antichrist can be anyone who denies Christ. But Antichrist in Revelation 13.1 is a direct reference to 
one particular person who, who usurps and fights against Christ. This person is to come. The Antichrist will be characterized by the same character qualities or lack thereof of Nebuchadnezzar. Pride, megalomania, defiance, violence. The same things that Nebuchadnezzar same qualities, or like I said, they're not really qualities, but attributes that he bore. The Antichrist will bear those same qualities. So Nebuchadnezzar is thought of in Scripture as a foreshadow of the Antichrist. He is a figure that points to that future person who will come and do the same things as him. Less repentance, because I think Nebuchadnezzar repents at the end of chapter 4. Another parallel with the book of Revelation, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom foreshadows the kingdom of Antichrist, which is called Babylon the Great. Revelation 14.8, Revelation 16.9, and 21. So, Nebuchadnezzar, this king, foreshadows and represents the coming Antichrist, and his kingdom, Babylon, represents the coming Babylon, or maybe what we would call the new Babylon, or as it is presented in Revelation, Babylon the Great. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, the 90-foot tall thing, you know, the 9 feet wide, it foreshadows the image Antichrist will create or erect Probably his throne in the newly built Jewish temple at Jerusalem. Revelation 13, 14. So the idea that this this particular king and this particular kingdom built a statue, these things will be done again in the future by Antichrist. They'll be a little different, but they're going to be done. Nebuchadnezzar's, fourthly, Nebuchadnezzar's lust Extreme desire, crazy fixation on unification foreshadows Antichrist's lust for unification. Revelation 13, 15. Nebuchadnezzar basically wanted the entire world under his rule. He wanted the entire world to worship him, his gods, and to be under his political system. Antichrist will have the same Mantra, the same desire, the same goal. And fifth, Nebuchadnezzar's edict to worship his golden image or die foreshadows the Antichrist's edict to worship his image or die. Die. That again is Revelation 13, 15. These parallels are incredible. Nebuchadnezzar's way of doing things, his, his ideology and his way of doing things and his actions mirror the actions of the ultimate enemy of God, in a sense, next to the devil, the Antichrist. What Nebuchadnezzar was doing at this point is exactly what Antichrist will do when he comes. Little variations, a little different statue to worship. It'll probably be his throne, but for the most part, these things are going to be duplicated. Incredible. And as I said, there are more parallels that we'll look at as we get to them. How did 
the leaders respond when the music began to play. What did they do? Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And right here, this is one of those duh moments. Hmm, let's see. Bow and worship this crazy looking thing or be thrown into that fiery furnace. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was concerned about authentic worship, about true loyalty. Totalitarians don't care about any of that. What they care about is control and power. He wasn't, you know, pleading with people to get under his rule and reign or, or giving them, you know, five ways that he's going to better their lives or doing what our politicians do. It was at gunpoint. He didn't care about authenticity. All he cared about was the act. And, and what did these people do? Well, obviously, they would have rather bowed to this thing, and some of them were probably extremely loyal and thought this guy was maybe some type of God or the next best thing since sliced bread. But I think a great number of them just bowed and complied because they didn't want to get roasted. I mean, they took the herald's warning very, very seriously, did they not? And I'm just thinking... Well, you know, I'm this man of God and, and all this stuff, and I got strong faith and all that. And I tell you, if they did that to me, I wouldn't have bowed. I would have been bowing at 75 bows per second. We're good. I'm reminded of that young lady at, at, at I think it was at Columbine, who had a, an AK 47 or some sort of assault. Well, I don't want to call it an assault rifle, that's a fictitious term. A high-powered rifle pointed at her head. I think her name was Cassie Bernal. Isn't your last name Bernal? Way to go, brother. I think it was Cassie Bernal. And, 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 and she's, you know, she's told by Dylan Klebold or one of those guys with a gun to her head to renounce Christ or take a bullet. Her life was ended. Well, that's what I would have done. Really? I mean, we can all say that in theory. But if we were put in this moment, if you were in this... I don't think you can accurately answer that question unless you find yourself in this kind of thing. I think that's the only way to be fair about it. And she was shot through the head and murdered because she loved Jesus. There was a great threat here it was just huge not only are we talking about death here we're talking about a mode of death or execution that i think would that would just be you know what, what would this happen very quickly i don't know about you I, I got a road rash on my forearm a few years ago and i was like ah. i can't even imagine what it must feel like to be burned alive you know, ISIS does this. They put people in cages because they won't submit to Sharia and Allah or maybe they're a Jordanian 
Pilate, maybe he was drowned. I don't know how he was executed, but, you know, they burned them alive. And I just have to think that that has to be probably one of the worst ways to die. Maybe it doesn't happen as quickly as possible. I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you how serious this is. And maybe suggest that we wouldn't be so, so quick to say that we would, you know, stand firm. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not going to do it. These people dropped and started worshiping their guts out. All hail Nebuchadnezzar. All hail Plankton. If you watch SpongeBob. I'm going to rule the world. All of them dropped and started bowing, except for three. There were some that didn't bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we're going to have to wait to talk about them. And then I was thinking, where's Daniel in this? How come he's not resisting? Right? It doesn't mention Daniel. He recorded this. Where's he at in the mix? Did he somehow give in and, and bow? Because he's not mentioned in the resistance here. He's not mentioned as, as like, one of the, like, like the fourth guy here. And I thought, oh, no. What's going on here? Where's Daniel? He recorded this. Maybe he was in the back and somehow he got away with it. You know, he had a press sign on and the press didn't have to partake. They were just recording. Well, no, I was reading and looking. You know, what, what, where was he at? Tell me, Lord, that he didn't give in. He wasn't at the event. That's the only explanation because you know if he had been, would he not have resisted? Of course he would have. He was kind of the leader of the other guys. He would have said, not going to do it. So he must have not been there. I don't know how else, I don't know what else to say. Now we'll look at those three men who did not comply in the coming weeks. Now I'd like to begin to, to kind of wrap it up. You know, as I was studying this text and reading this text, and I was talking to my brother right here, I think, what was it, yesterday, we were talking in the morning, we went on this walk, and when I read these stories and I look at Nebuchadnezzar and what he did and all that, I tend to get kind of critical and self-righteous and judgmental and say, what an idiot. What a moron. You know, years earlier you were, you know, praising Daniel's God and bowing and, you know, worshiping like a fool. And, and then all of a sudden you go out and erect a God in your honor and glory and you bring all the people there and say, bow to, bow to me, essentially, or die. I mean, how, what an idiot. Who would worship their self in this way. I mean, I just, that's what I think. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar's shiny statue and self-serving statute is meant to remind us that we are all idolaters who worship false gods. See, if we say he's an idiot, he doesn't get it, I can't believe what he did, we don't understand our own flawed nature and what we do on a moment-by-moment moment daily basis. John Calvin face, famously wrote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. <laughs> That's a truthful statement. That's a profound statement. You see, a God can be anything that gets your full devotion an idol can be anything 
that gets your full devotion. It could be your spouse. It could be your children or one of your, you know, one child. It could be a boyfriend, girlfriend. It could be your career. <laughs> could be your business. Could be your education. It could be your bank account, your home, your hobby. And I would say the biggest one of all is yourself. We could turn, literally, we could turn anything good in our lives into a God, lower G, into an idol. And we might secretly laugh at the notion of worshiping a false God, but the truth is, anytime we place something above God, we are submitting to a false God. We are committing idolatry. We are worshiping a false God. That's a fact. You know how many people miss church on a regular basis throughout the nation? Christians, our brothers and sisters, they miss it because they choose to work so that they can make money. What does money do for us? It enables us to buy things. It gives us a sense of power. It gives us a sense of value because we put nice things on our bodies and all of this. If we deliberately skip church to work to make money, who's our true God? Ourself. If we neglect our families because we want to work and make money, who's our true God? Well, it could be your family because you think that they have to have the next best thing. I don't think that money's ever a God because money is a tool that we use for this God right here or for some other God. Now, God forbids idolatry for several reasons, and I have two. First, he forbids it because he alone is worthy of our worship, our full devotion. God created and saved us, which means that we belong to him. Scripture even refers to our relationship with him as a marriage. When we worship created things, especially ourselves, it's as if we are cheating on God like an adulterous spouse. When we exalt ourselves and we're so focused and devoted to ourselves or whatever, where all the money, time, talent, treasure, everything goes into this, we are committing adultery against Him. Whenever we shift that devotion, that kind of level of focus and devotion and love and attention off of Him onto something else, we are committing adultery. We are serving and worshiping an idol. And I don't know if you knew this or not, I was reminded of, of something that I learned years ago that still blows my mind, but one of God's names, you know, he has these names, El Shaddai, and these names, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, he has these names in the Old Testament, and one of his names is El Kana, which means I am jealous. Well, that's not right for God to be jealous. That's not a good quality. It certainly is when you're God. He is like a husband who gets jealous over his wife when she flirts, when another man approaches her. God is very jealous for his bride, for you, if you're in Christ, for me. And he has every right to be jealous for his bride because he sent his son to die for her so that he could spend eternity with his bride. 
So God forbids idolatry because He alone is worthy of our worship and full devotion. Now that doesn't mean that you don't feed yourself and take care of yourself and do all of these things, but do we not have a problem with going too far with this stuff? Of course. The second reason God forbids idolatry is because He loves us and He wants to protect us. Idolatry, whether you're worshiping yourself or something else, wherever your devotion is is on, your full devotion, it's committed to. Idolatry brings unnecessary trouble and tribulation into our lives. It makes our lives a mess because we were created to worship God alone, not ourselves or anything else. We are actually going against the natural order, the created order. Israel, God's people, the nation of Israel experienced wars and famine and death and disease and tons and tons of heartache because of idolatry. I'm thinking that God is sovereign and He had a plan and He he planned for them to go through all these things, but I also think that if they hadn't given themselves over to some of these idols, they wouldn't have had some of the wars. They wouldn't have lost the promised land. They wouldn't have suffered the heartache. That's a hypothetical. We know how things played out. But God does say, stay away from the idols. Stay away from the worship of created things. Yourself, the worship of your spouse, the worship of anything else. Because it goes against my order. It will bring pain and heartache and destruction and tribulation into your life. And guess what? I have a much better plan for you. Jesus says, I've come that you might have abundant life. That abundant life goes right out the window as soon as we start devoting ourselves and worshiping other things, especially ourselves. So he forbids it because he alone is worthy of our worship and that kind of devotion, our heart in that way. And he he says, stay away from it. He forbids it because he loves us and he wants to protect us. He does not want us to to go through tribulations that we create that are self-inflicted by our stupidity and lust in our flesh and desires for these things. You know, the devil is, is very, very clever because he makes us believe that idols and that the worship of other things will be beneficial, will satisfy, will bring the sense of you know, security and, and, and value and, and all of these things. He, he takes the idols and he puts them out there and, he, and, he, and they're shiny and they're golden and they're beautiful and he tells us that this is what you need. This is what will get you to this level. This is what will be an ultimate blessing to you. And when we believe his lie, and that's the original sin, right? That's the original lie, Eat the fruit, ye shall be as gods. When we believe him and we bite the fruit and we take our devotion and put it on ourselves or on someone else or on something else, whether it be a hobby or anything else, we think that we're going to be satisfied. We think that the idol is going to pay high dividends. But what it actually does is rob us of our joy. Why? Because it separates us from the source of our joy, God Himself. 
when Adam and Eve believed the devil's lie, they, they sinned big time. But they also lost the joy and the security and the beautiful things that God blesses us with. They lost it all. So my closing question to you is, do you have idols in your life? What shiny statues do you bow to? Who or what do you worship? Just test yourself and ask yourself this question. You've got people in your lives. You've got money. You've got a bank account. You've got these things. If you look at your children or if you look at your spouse or if you look at your job or if you look at something else and you say to yourself, I cannot imagine what life would be like without that spouse, without that child, without that person, without that job, without that car. If you say that kind of thing, you feel that way, that proves that you're an idolater. Because at the end of the day, the only person you should not be able to live without is Christ. You see, if you can't live without it, it's an idol. It's got a level of devotion and commitment from you that that it is not worthy of. That will ultimately slam you and rob you of your joy. Do you worship your spouse? Do you worship your children, your kids? Do you worship yourself? And I would say that the basis of all idolatry is self. Think about the different kinds of mythology, Roman, Greek, Egyptian, Babylonian. All of those gods and those pantheons of gods were ideas created from people. Like they cooked up their own gods. They created the idea of Marduk and these kinds of gods. And the sole purpose of those gods is to serve the people that created them. So are they actually worshiping, was Nebuchadnezzar actually worshiping Marduk or was he worshiping himself because Marduk was simply there to serve him? This is the primary idol right here. You. When Jesus spoke about hating father and mother in Luke 1426 he wasn't encouraging his listeners to hate their families that's what everyone says look we have to turn against our families now that's not what he meant he was pointing out the importance of putting him above all you cannot put your mother your father your siblings your children you cannot put them before God that's an idol that's what he was teaching and I would say this how difficult is it for us to keep Jesus above all That is the fight and battle of our lives as Christians. You will spend the remainder of your years fighting to keep Jesus preeminent in your life because you have flesh, you have a devil, you have a world that is contradicting that and telling you, you're what's most important. It's not easy. It is not easy to keep Jesus above all. It is a battle. It is the fight of our lives. But we must fight. And I'm certainly glad that Jesus understands how hard this is for us and that he gives us grace in spite of our failures. 
I'm glad Jesus doesn't base his love for us, his acceptance of us on our performance because we usually, most of the time, perform poorly, don't we? And I'm glad Jesus has given us power in the Holy Spirit to fight against the idols, the outside idols that take our devotion and time and focus, the inside us. I'm so glad that he gives us power in the Holy Spirit to fight against those idols, the idols that challenge his high position in our lives. He does that for us.